Welcome to Patterns of Care in Multiple Myeloma. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. This program is a culmination of a collaborative CME project involving faculty members Drs. Irene Gobriel, Sagar Loniel, and Edward Fonseca. In the monograph with this program, we detail the results of a March 2010 U.S.-based national survey of 28 clinical investigators specializing in myeloma and 100 community-based medical oncologists. The survey was based primarily on nine actual cases from the practices of the faculty, and in this audio program, we review five of these and the related survey findings, beginning with a 41-year-old patient of Dr. Gobriel. So it's interesting. This patient, it was 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon, and she presented to a leukemia doctor, actually not to me, and was transferred as a case of leukemia. So this is a young woman. She's a nurse, has been having some fatigue. She had a pneumonia while they were doing her lab work. They found her to be pancytopenic. They did an initial bone marrow. They saw a lot of blast. They thought it was leukemia, transferred her, and actually she was driving her own car coming here to Dana-Farber to see Dr. Rich Stone, one of our leukemia doctors at Dana-Farber. And then he does the marrow again, looks at the one before and says, this is all plasma cells. They're not actually leukemia. So calls me to see her. And you can guess she's scared, you know, and we go through her staging. We go through everything and we define that she has really multiple myeloma and not leukemia. And can you go through the rest of her workup? Sure. So a skeletal survey was done. She had some lucencies, but nothing much. Her cytogenetics came back and she has translocation 414, which is one of the worst prognostic factors we have in myeloma. But her albumin was, you know, not bad, 3.9, which is normal. Her beta-2 microglobulin was barely above the numbers that we use for staging, the 3.6. And she looked very good, healthy, otherwise no problems. So really, you have a very aggressive disease that's growing, 95% packing the bone marrow and a translocation 414, but otherwise no other risk features in her. What about the overall issue of actually evaluating risk profile? In our survey, we found that the vast majority, 86% of the docs in practice do this. And for the small minority who don't, the primary reason was, quote, they didn't think it was going to make a difference in terms of what they were going to do. What are your thoughts about this? Is this just for research purposes or really important in terms of patient care? No, I think it's becoming more and more patient care. I think myeloma is now going to be really stratified as patients with certain risk features like 414, 1114 versus or 14, you know, translocations or 13Q deletions or things like this versus patients who have no abnormal cytogenetics or good prognostic features. And it will matter in the treatment. Right now, we already put bortezomib in some patients who have poor prognostic features like 13Q deletion. It may make a big difference for us. And again, this is by cytogenetics, not by FISH. So 13Q deletion by FISH does not make a prognostic factor or is not a bad prognostic factor. It's only by cytogenetics because of the plasma cell doubling time or, you know, how fast they double for you to get it by cytogenetics. 414, in some papers, it says that bortezomib can overcome this. In other papers, it says it doesn't. There is a paper that's coming out soon that will say bortezomib cannot overcome it completely, but it does still have some effect on it. So I think there are some drugs that we would use in poor cytogenetic features, especially bortezomib, especially novel agents like lenalidomide. Now, can you go through the way you determine a patient's risk? Only two-thirds of the docs in practice labeled this patient high risk. Actually, some said they didn't know. Others said standard risk. Well, even if you don't think that by ISS staging system, she's high risk because she's not, she's intermediate, just having the 414 translocation 
alone is enough for you to say this is a high-risk feature. If you saw that this patient had a packed marrow, but it's been there for years or for several months without any problems, you could say potentially this is a slower-growing myeloma. But she presented very fast with a packed bone marrow. You can see that this was a fast-growing myeloma, and especially having that translocation makes you definitely high-risk. How would you respond to the 14% of physicians who said, well, this doesn't really make any difference? Overall, globally, not just in this patient, how does determining risk affect what you do? Does it affect induction? Does it affect maintenance or both? Or how does it affect your management? Everything. So it does affect induction. You have to use several combinations, especially novel agents, especially bortezomib and lenalidomide in it. You may even start thinking, well, patients who will go into transplant, will transplant help those patients or not? Or within six months, she's going to relapse. You'll definitely have to think of maintenance. Right now, we're already doing a lot of maintenance therapy, but especially in high-risk feature patients, you'll have to think of maintenance even potentially considering bortezomib maintenance in some of those patients and not just lenalidomide maintenance. So I would say, yes, it does make a difference. In the future, we will have more and more individualized therapy where you have specific trials for specific patients. The other thing is FGFR3 can occur in patients with 4-4-3 translocation. So we have some new drugs now that target FGFR3, and you'll probably see this more and more now in the new era of novel agents in myeloma. So what was your initial plan for this patient? So we gave this patient Revlimid, Velcade, and Dex, so bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone combination. She actually had a very good response to therapy. She went on to receive stem cell transplant and had a very good response to it, and then went on to receive lenalidomide maintenance. And what's her current situation? She's in a near-complete remission on lenalidomide maintenance now. And how long has she been on the maintenance? Almost a year. And how long you plan to continue? Yeah, very good question. So the data that's out there has been for two years. The trials that were done were for maintenance lenalidomide for two years. I would, you know, off trial without knowing long term, I will keep her on maintenance lenalidomide. We have patients on the clinical trials that were done originally, phase one, phase two trials, who are on lenalidomide now six years, seven years. So it's not a safety concern. I think as long as we monitor her carefully and she's doing well and no toxicity, then I would keep her on it. Now, you treated her with RVD, and that was the most common choice of the investigators, more than half, but also about 18% would use Cyborg D. What is that, and what's the rationale? Yeah, so different combinations, cytoxin, bortezomib, and dexamethasone is a wonderful combination, gives you very high response. I would agree, Cyborg D is an excellent combination. Shaji Kumar from Mayo Clinic presented the phase two, randomized phase two study of cytoxin, bortezomib, dex versus Revlimid, Velcade, and dex versus cytoxin, Revlimid, Velcade, and dex, so the four drugs. And in that trial, although it was, again, not powered to compare those drugs, all three arms did very well and they had very good responses. When he changed the dose of cytoxin, so we were surprised that the four-drug regimen does as well as three-drug regimen. We were thinking maybe we're going to even get a higher response when you add cytoxin, bortezomib, revlimid, and dex together. And he didn't, at least in that trial. The toxicity was very similar. When he changed the dose of the cytoxin and added an extra week of the cytoxin, he's starting now to see a higher complete remission rate and stringent complete remission. So I think we will see more and more of this phase two randomized study. But the Cyborg D or RevVeldex or Cy RevVeldex are perfectly fine as combinations. Now, about half of the physicians in practice also said that for a patient like that, 
they would use RVD, but a substantial number would use other regimens, and it looks like it kind of breaks down into using either bortezomib or lenalidomide with something else, usually dexamethasone. What about that type of approach? I think Revdex alone is okay, but I, especially with the 414 translocation, light chain myeloma, IgA myeloma, anything that has high risk, I like to add bortezomib in it. So having both novel agents together would be a good idea, linalidomide and bortezomib. VTD, which is bortezomib, thalidomide, and DEX combination is fine too, but again, the risk of neuropathy is high with the thalidomide and Velcate together. So why not replace it with linalidomide, given that we have the data now from Paul Richardson showing that RVD has high responses and less toxicity, especially less neurotoxicity. Velcade docs, indeed, they have, and I see only 4% of the doctors talked about that. It's also a good option. There is nothing wrong with that. But RVD is better tolerated, and we're seeing very high responses with this. What about treatment in terms of the decision for transplant? Yeah, very good question. And interesting that now people are starting to do less and less transplant. This is a new trend now in myeloma. I think if you had asked the same question three years ago, 100% would have said stem cell transplant. Now we're starting to say, well, could we mobilize and store? Should we just do maintenance revlimid? So you know very well that we are initiating a big study with the French group with IFM where we are going to randomize patients to transplant or no transplant. And the reason to do that is because in the era of novel agents, we don't know anymore whether transplant really adds to the benefit of uh, a combination like RVD that gives you already a very high response rate and an excellent depth of response. So in those patients, half will get mobilized and then go on to maintenance and half will go on with the transplant and then follow it by maintenance. Again, with this patient, she's young. We talked about all the risks and benefits of transplant, and she chose to go for a transplant upfront. I think it's important to note now that you have to achieve a good response before going into transplant. In the old days, we used to say, well, even if you didn't achieve an excellent response, just do it with a transplant and you'll get a good response. Maury Gertz just published a paper in Blood, this issue that just came out, and it has a CME with it, where basically you see that patients who had lenalidomide and DEX, it wasn't including bortezomib in that study, and they did not achieve a partial response, they did not do very well with the transplant. So you have to achieve at least a PR in some of the novel agents before you take them to transplant. Now, what about the decision here to use maintenance lenalidomide? It looks like we have 79% of the investigators, but only 56% of the oncologists. What was the key data set that prompted you to want to do that? And what do you think about these results? Yeah. So there are two large studies that were done with lenalidomide maintenance, and these were presented in ASH last year. Hopefully, we'll get more results this year. There is the CELGB study, which we were part of it. It was randomizing patients post-transplant to low-dose lenalidomide, 15 milligrams, versus placebo. And then there was the French study, which, again, very similar study design. Both of them showed the results we actually had to stop the CLGB study and show the results to everyone and move over patients who were on the placebo to lenalidomide. And both of them show you a progression-free survival difference. Patients who had lenalidomide had a better PFS compared to placebo. We don't have data on overall survival in those studies. 
Now, what about the use of bisphosphonates? What did you do in this patient, and what do you think about? It looks like there's a fair amount of heterogeneity in how people approach the situation. Right, and it's going to get more and more confusing very soon because there are so many studies coming out now saying that very long-term use of bisphosphonates is actually causing more problems with fractures in some patients because of lack of bone remodeling. So we might have to change, again, the guidelines. Right now, what we usually do is for one year, we give them uh, once a month's treatment, and then we go on to every, you know, again, this is controversial, but I usually do in the second year, every three months, as long as they had a good response and they have no new lesions, of course, or no new myeloma relapse. And then after the second year, it's hard to know. Some people go on indefinitely, and that's what we used to do in the old days. Now we're starting to watch that we can't keep going on forever with those bisphosphonates. And I usually say if they have no new lytic lesions, if they're in an excellent remission, they've received two years of therapy, I'd rather stop at that point and not continue on forever. We are having several clinical trials going on right now. There is a ZMARC study that actually randomizes patients to either once a month or every three months after the initial one year of therapy to see if those patients will benefit from the three months treatment or not. There are some studies that use NTX levels to see how long you will need to treat those patients with bisphosphonates. And of course, there are so many other new drugs that are coming out, anti-rank ligand inhibitors, anti-DKK1 inhibitors. All of those will probably play a big role in treatment of bone disease and myeloma.